0: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew.
1: Real love is calling listen. People will often get very charged and passionate about Let's build an orphanage for kids, and let's build a hospital for the sick. And I get that, and those are important. And to the degree that people are called to do that, you should do it. But if you don't elevate Jesus even above that, then you're going to have an orphanage where kids will grow up, never know the gospel, die and go to hell. You'll have hospitals where people are physically made well, but they never hear the gospel, and they die and go to hell. In other words, humanitarian causes can never be greater than Jesus himself. Throughout
0: the Bible, you can read how Christ followers are told to help, care, and serve others in need. Unfortunately, people can get caught up in the self-satisfaction of helping others, instead of the real reason that God wants them to serve. As you'll learn in today's message from Pastor Gary, if all you are doing is caring for the physical needs of people, but you don't tell them about Jesus and their need for a Savior, then you are only helping them temporarily, not eternally. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
1: When you look here into chapter 26, uh, it becomes a very somber chapter. These closing chapters of Matthew until, of course, we get to the resurrection story are very uh, tragic. They are very painful. They are sorrowful. They are full of agony, because we're leading now into the uh, the hours just preceding the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And in chapter twenty six, you'll notice as I just kind of highlight some of the subtitles in my Bible that at uh, the beginning of chapter six, there's the plot against Jesus. This is when the religious leaders are going to intensify their desire to uh, see Jesus dead. Judas will agree to betray Jesus in this chapter, one of his own, one of the twelve, will agree to betray Jesus. Jesus will have the Last Supper with his disciples, which is the Passover celebration, and then he will go to Gethsemane, where he will, under excruciating agony, pray just before he is arrested. This chapter also includes that, the story of his arrest. And then he's going to be hauled before the Jewish ruling council, which is also called the Sanhedrin, and they will uh, sentence him to death. But because the, the, uh, the capital punishment has been taken away from the Jews under the Roman Empire, they have to enforce their legal system through Rome. And so that's why they have to appeal to Caesar, because they have to get permission to crucify Jesus. And uh, so this is that chapter. It's, uh, it's not lighthearted at all. It's very somber and serious. But this is what Jesus has come to do. You know, all these chapters leading up to 26 were in preparation for his ultimate purpose. His ultimate purpose, to come and to die for the sins of the world. Why? Because he loves us. And what Jesus did by dying on the cross was not for just one point in time. It was for all people for all time. And it included you and me. The fact is that Jesus had you and me in mind When he dies on the cross, he had all of humanity in mind because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not a select few, not a predetermined few, by the way, but all the world, as many as would believe him, to them that received him, he gave the right to become children of God. So it's an open invitation, but Jesus dies. And so as we see him preparing for the cross, we're going to get a glimpse into his agony, the preparation of his suffering, uh, his betrayal, uh, this, is, this is some tragic stuff that happens here. So Matthew 23, 24, and 25 are almost entirely in red if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible because Matthew 23, 24, and 25 are the words of Jesus in what is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, then on Monday, he will give this discourse. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse, because it's a combination of what he says in the city of Jerusalem plus what he says to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, thus the Olivet Discourse. And primarily chapter 24 and the signs of the end of the age was what he taught to his disciples there from the Mount of Olives. And that's why chapter 26, when we come here, and it starts in verse 1 saying, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, So he has now finished this Olivet Discourse, he has finished the instructions here, he rebukes the leaders in chapter 23, he talks about signs of the end times related to a second coming in chapter 24, he gives parables in chapter 25 that that bolster the, the second coming of Jesus, and then when he says, it says here in chapter 26, when he had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know... The Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Now, this is the Passover feast. This is celebrated every year by the Jews And uh, by the time that Jesus is celebrating this with his disciples, the Jews had been practicing the Passover for some 1,400 years. There were a few periods in their history during that 1,400 years that they didn't practice Passover, captivity in Babylon, and when the Assyrians came. But primarily, for 1,400 years, they have been uh, practicing the Passover feast. Now, just in a nutshell, the Passover feast that the Jews celebrated, and and, uh, uh, Orthodox Jews, uh, and... Conservative Jews, they still even practice Passover today. And we might even still, as believers, practice an aspect of the Passover meal, which is the Seder meal. But originally, it was for a reminder that God had delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and took them to the Promised Land. So if you're with us on the weekends, we've been going through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all that Exodus story. They're leaving slavery in Egypt. They're on the way to the Promised Land. When they left Egypt in haste, because after 10 plagues, Pharaoh finally reluctantly released the Israelites to leave, the Hebrew slaves. And because they didn't have time to let the bread rise to add yeast to their dough, they took their their unleavened bread, bread without yeast, and made haste and exit departure that was in haste on the way to the Promised Land. And thus, God implemented a feast, a ceremony to always remember that he delivered them out of their bondage of Egypt. And Passover was that feast that commemorated when the angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites that had been marked by the blood of a lamb, and then they celebrated with the eating of the lamb and the eating of the matzah, which is the unleavened bread. And that Passover celebration continued, and here Jesus is celebrating it with his disciples. Now, all of this is perfectly timed because God is aligning the events with the timing of the crucifixion of his son, Jesus. Because Passover, though it was implemented originally to commemorate their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, it was always God's intent that it should point ultimately to Jesus. All of the feasts, of the Jewish feasts of the Old Testament, ultimately pointed to and were fulfilled and shall be fulfilled in Christ. Because there's even still some, there's the feast of trumpets that is still to occur and that will align itself with the coming of Jesus when the trumpet call of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive will remain and be caught up with together with them to meet the Lord in the air. All of the feasts pointed somehow to Jesus. The Passover feast was no exception. That's why in a moment in this chapter, Jesus is going to take an aspect of this Passover meal and he's going to say, this bread, it's my body. This cup, it's my blood. But they've gathered here now. They're about ready to celebrate the Passover, which is the last that Jesus will celebrate with his disciples. And he says plainly to his disciples there in verse 2 that the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. I I don't know if they are registering this. You know, they, they often hear this from Jesus. It doesn't often resonate. They don't quite get it. The chief priests, it says in verse 3, and the elders of the people, they are plotting some sly way that they can kill Jesus. What can we do to kill him? They are threatened by his leadership. They have rejected him as Messiah. They don't believe that he is the one that was promised. And so they're looking for a way to eliminate him. They see him as a threat. But they don't want to kill him during the feast time, during the Passover time, because, listen, Josephus' first century historian said that there were 250,000 lambs that were sacrificed in the first century. At a single Passover event, there was one lamb for every 10 males in a family, meaning 250,000 lambs represented 2.5 million people. The city of Jerusalem would swell to a couple million people during the feast times. And the chief priests and the leaders of the people knew they weren't dumb enough to know that if we want to eliminate Jesus, we ought not to create a riot because Jesus is pretty popular with the people. I mean, on Palm Sunday, just a couple of days before this, they're hailing Jesus with palm branches. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're singing Hosanna. They're singing the praises and they're quoting from the book of Psalms. And the chief priests, they know he's kind of a popular guy. And if we just rush To kill him, we're going to have a mob on our hands, and it's going to backlash. It's going to backfire on us. And so they're looking for some sly way so that they can avoid a riot among the people. Well, then there's a little commercial break in all of this from verse 6 down through verse 13. Jesus is going to go to Bethany where he will often retreat during the feast times, and uh, he's going to find lodging there. And it says in verse 6 that while Jesus was in Bethany, this is just about three-quarters of a mile on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So it's in in close walking proximity to Jerusalem. It says, While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are some 2,000 years later, and we're still reading the story. And what Jesus said became true, of course, that this woman has been memorialized for this event. So he's reclining at the home of one guy named Simon the leper. He he lives here in Bethany. Now, the early church tradition says that Simon the leper, we don't know this for sure, this is early church tradition, Simon the leper was the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Those three were brothers and sisters, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus was the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. And Simon the leper, it is believed, is their father. They do live in Bethany. We know that much to be true. And this may be his house. Now, it is likely also that this guy, Simon the leper, has been healed by Jesus. And he's just known as Simon the leper. Because if he really has active leprosy, you're not going to go to his house for dinner. Okay? You're not going to go out. His nose might fall off into the stew. You don't want that. So that's not. He's a, a, someone who has leprosy is considered unclean. They're ostracized. They're put out of the of the city. You don't you don't hang around people with leprosy. Now, of course, Jesus was an exception because you know he was the healer and he and he was also the one of great compassion. A leprosy, by the way, was an, an ongoing, untreatable illness that was a disease that affected the the skin and the extremities, and uh, it was not as intense as like what we have today is the flesh-eating bacteria, but it was, it was something that would make the skin scaly, and you could end up losing ears or, or uh, fingers as a result of it, and it would eventually kill you. And the causative organism for leprosy wasn't even discovered until 1873. A doctor by the name of G.H.A. Hansen, now it's been renamed Hansen's disease, and a cocktail of antibiotics was prescribed not until the 1980s. So this is a disease that was uncurable and untreatable until our lifetime, until the 80s, primarily. And, uh, and here this guy is, known as Simon the leper. Again, it's, it's probably not active leprosy. They wouldn't be having dinner there. And he's likely someone that Jesus has healed. Now, it says to us that a woman comes to Jesus. Here Jesus is at this dinner. And um, a woman comes to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. And she pours it on his head as he was reclining at the table. For you note-takers, just in the margin of your Bible, you might want to write down John 12, verses 1 through 8. John 12, verses 1 through 8. Because John 12, John's Gospel, gives us the same story, and he fills in a little bit more detail. And that's the beauty of the Gospels. When you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get four perspectives from four different angles. And so when you compare this story with what John tells us, John says that this woman is named. She's not named in Matthew's gospel, but John tells us that her name is Mary. She is the Mary, the sister of Lazarus. This is that Mary. And she comes to Jesus. Here he is reclining a table, which also makes more sense why, again, Simon the leper might be her dad. She breaks this alabaster jar of perfume, and John's gospel tells us it was worth, Matthew says it was very expensive. John was specific. He says it was worth a year's salary. A year. And the Gospels also describe this perfume as pure nard. And most Bible commentaries, when you study about this expensive perfume, believe that it was imported from India, very expensive. Think about your annual salary. That is what this perfume cost. And in order to get into the nard or into the perfume, you had to break the alabaster jar. It wasn't like a little lid that you pulled off and used a little bit. Once you opened this, it was going to be gone. It was going to be done. She breaks it, and she pours it over his head. And she's doing this, Jesus says, in preparation for his burial. And this is interesting, because what it tells us is that Mary understood something even his own apostles didn't. Even his own apostles did not grasp that this was, in fact, something she was doing in anticipation of his burial. She's basically pre-anointing his body for burial. We know the apostles didn't get it because why? Well, Matthew tells us that they rise up. They're indignant is the word that he uses here. They're mad because they thought, well, this money could have been given to the poor. She could have sold this. And basically what they're saying, she's wasted this. She's wasted this on Jesus? You can never do anything for Jesus that would be a waste. And Jesus rebukes them. Now John tells us something else that Matthew doesn't Matthew says the disciples were indignant. John was specific. He says that Judas speaks. Judas was really the one who was most indignant. You put it together, and it means that Judas was indignant, and the disciples were like, yeah, but Judas was the ringleader of this indignation. And it tells us in John's gospel, because Judas was the keeper of the money bag. He was like the little treasurer for the disciples and for Jesus, I mean, think about it. They traveled around for three and a half years, and they're just kind of living and, and uh, ministering. And uh, so, uh, what we come to understand is that as people would give offerings, and uh, actually, as the Gospels talk about it, a lot of the women would do work in order to provide for the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. And Judas would be the keeper of the money bank, so people would make offerings. Jesus Evangelistic Association Incorporated, writing checks. And then then Judas was responsible for cashing the checks, putting a little money bag. But John's gospel says that Judas said this, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, because he had been helping himself to the money bag. And the word thief in the Greek is kleptes. We get our English word kleptomaniac. Somebody likes to help themselves to stuff that doesn't belong to them. Judas was a little klepto, and he would often help himself to the money bag that he was supposed to be keeping for Jesus' ministry. So he didn't say this because he cared for the poor. He said this because he was a thief, and he realized this could have gone in the money bag that he could have helped himself to. And Jesus says something interesting here in response to this, because he says, you will always have the poor, but you will not always have me. Now, note that. It is not as if Jesus is being insensitive to the plight of the poor. Jesus is always compassionate about the poor. And all through the Bible, particularly in the Proverbs, it talks about having compassion and caring for the poor. He's not being insensitive to the poor. But he does say something to us that I think is important for priorities in ministry. A lot of people, well-meaning people, people who love other people, will often elevate humanitarian causes... And Jesus says that he, Jesus, is to be elevated among humanitarian causes. In other words, people will often get very charged and passionate about, let's build an orphanage for kids and let's build a hospital for the sick. And I get that, and those are important. And to the degree that people are called to do that, you should do it. But if you don't elevate Jesus even above that, then you're going to have an orphanage where kids will grow up, never know the gospel, die and go to hell. You'll have hospitals where people are physically made well, but they never hear the gospel and they die and go to hell. In other words, humanitarian causes can never be greater than Jesus himself. And a lot of times people get a sense of self-worth and a sense of self-satisfaction because they simply respond to humanitarian needs, and there is an important, significant place for that. I'm not diminishing that. But if we only give water to those who don't have water, only give food to those that don't have food, and we only administer to the needs without giving Jesus as the most elevated supreme gift that somebody can receive, then we will only be helping them temporarily and not eternally. Jesus says, you will always have the poor. He's not being insensitive there, but he's giving us an idea of priority. Jesus has to always be the most important thing that we elevate, the most important one that we elevate, that we share, that we spread around the world, in addition to taking care of human need. But the humanitarian causes cannot be in the driver's seat. It has to be in the back seat to the cause of Christ, always. And so Jesus commends her, and he memorializes her in this story, And uh, what a great reminder here of what she does. It's very sacrificial. It's very expensive. It's very generous. A whole annual salary poured out on his head. Now, it's in contrast to the next passage. I want you to see this. Verse 14, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over now we don 't know what triggered in judas 's heart that he would want to betray Jesus like this i don 't know we, we can all point to Scripture, which says that this was preordained and that this was foretold and that it was you know predestined we, we can We can talk about that but but beyond the foreknowledge of God that is expressed to us, where Judas is actually fulfilling something. God doesn't violate human free will. There's still something within Judas that was rebellious and a betrayer that God, knowing, took advantage of to accomplish God's purposes. But Judas here is someone who betrays Jesus, and you begin to wonder, you know, what what was triggered in his own heart that he would decide to go against Jesus. that He would decide to betray him. I mean, you've been with Jesus for three and a half years. You've been seeing his miracles. You've been experiencing his ministry. You've been hearing his love and knowing his love and living with him and eating with him. And and you've been spending all of this time with him. And what breaks in your heart and in your head to to make you want to go to the chief priest and be paid to betray him? His asking price here is 30 pieces of silver which is the equivalent in this day of four months' wages. Four months' wages. Now notice that in juxtaposition to the passage we just read. You have a woman here who is willing to be very generous to give something very expensive to honor Jesus, and in the next story you have one of his own disciples wanting to get something to betray Jesus. One woman who wanted to give something to honor him, one man who wants to get something to betray him very sharp contrast here in this story by the way the first time that Judas speaks recorded in scripture is the story about the woman about Mary giving out this expensive perfume John's gospel records that's when Judas says hey this money could have been given to the poor it's the first time in the Bible that Judas is recorded speaking in, in chronology this is the second time Hope is ocean. jump in and you'll find the corner. Run
0: your new life. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Matthew on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can download our mobile app, too, while you're there. It's under On The Go. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we want to invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30 and 11.45, as well as on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. CornerstoneConnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more and you can meet the staff if you're not able to join us in person right now that's okay we're live streaming each sunday and wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc if you have any questions for us or if you'd like to share a prayer request please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net that's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net well that's all we have time for today Thanks for joining us to study Matthew, and we hope you'll tune in again to learn more about Jesus. That's right here on Cornerstone Connection.
1: They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know.